Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Council. I recently sat down with Chad Stevens, President and CEO of PHX Minerals, a publicly traded minerals and royalties company that is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. During the episode, Chad walks through his 40 plus years of experience in the upstream space, including over a 30 year stint with Range Resources, and why he joined PHX Minerals and what his vision is going forward. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Chad has to say. Chad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Damn, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So before we jump in, you know, I'm curious to hear about what PHX Minerals is up to, kind of your role as you've stepped in recently as the new CEO, uh, but, but a little background on yourself. You've been in the industry for a while on the upstream side. You had a long stint with range. So um, you know where you grew up, school. And how you got into the oil patch? I'll I'll hand it over to you. Uh, yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm excited to be here and, and to, to be able to tell my story and talk about PHX. I was born and raised in Fort Worth, third third generation Fort Worthian. I attended the University of Texas, graduated after four years with a DBA business degree. Um, my, my dad was an attorney with a large firm in Fort Worth. He did legal work for some of the local oil and gas companies there in Fort Worth. So. I was, from an early age, exposed to oil and gas and was intrigued by the success displayed by these various people that I met, and, and provi- they were providing an important commodity to our country, I realized, at an early age. And so that the, the overall industry looked exciting to me, and so from a really early age, I was drawn to it. But at the University of Texas, I got a business degree, then I went back after a year and got an uh, additional degree in land management and also took a bunch of courses. I, really gave me, a, I, I thought, a pretty balanced education for my role in, in future positions with companies I worked with. So I moved back to Fort Worth in, in the late 80s. But but before that, I had been with, uh, at, when I graduated from the University of Texas, I, I lived in Tulsa for a year, then uh, Midland. And I was out in Midland for eight years working for City Service and another company called H&G Oil that became Enron. So um, that, that was, I was with H&G before they merged. But once I left H&G, I moved back to Fort A short stint with a small family company called Brewer Wagner. It gave me a kind of exposure and a platform to move to a, a really a situation that I'd, I'd always really looked for and wanted to be involved in. It was a small company called Lomac Petroleum. That Tom Edelman and John Pinkerton were putting together. They, they both were the really the impetus behind a, a company there for called Snyder Oil Company, SoCo. John Snyder, a, a great man that I got to know as well. Uh, so I went to work for, for Lomac, learned a lot from working with Tom and, and John in terms of the A&D processes, but, but overall investment banking markets. We did a lot of deals. I did a lot of deals over $2, $2 billion just at Lomac Petroleum using debt and equity. And so I, I, I got a great exposure. They gave me a really loose rope and it taught me a lot through that process from 90 to about 2003. Um, markets changed, things changed. Lomac got in a bit of a financial difficulty, but we were able to work our way through the bit of financial difficulty as commodity prices had dropped at the turn of the decade. At, at, at about 2003-04, the Barnett Shale really started getting traction. We got into the Barnett Shale, uh, bought a private equity company there in Fort Worth. It was involved in the Barnett Shale, and it really led us to the Marcellus. We had changed our name from Lomac the range in 2010. One of our geologists in Pennsylvania office, in Pittsburgh office, his entire career 
was in the Appalachia Basin. He knew the entire geologic stack. He called us one day and said uh, he thought that the Marcellus was a lookalike to the Barnett Shale and was actually better. So we were the first company do, to do a Barnett Shale-style frack, a George Mitchell Barnett Shale-style frack east of the Mississippi in the Marcellus. It was in an old vertical wellbore. And we, we had our, our goal was to, if it produced over just an old vertical wellbore, we put a slick water frack on it. If it produced over 100 MCF a day, we thought it was going to be a success. It ended up coming in at three or 400 MCF a day. So we were, we were high-fiving. We, we realized that we had something, our, that Bill Zagorski was correct. And the rest is history. We started acquiring acreage in both the southwestern portion of the state and up in and around where Cabot now is. Um, but we figured out we were too small. We had a tiger by the tail, and we were, we were really too small. At the time, we were probably a billion-dollar market cap company, probably even smaller. And we couldn't state it. The state of Pennsylvania is huge. We knew that the Marcellus extended across the entire state of Pennsylvania. There's just no way we could capture the whole place. So we, we'd staked our flag in the southwestern part of the state and around Pittsburgh, where, where range is today, because of infrastructure, pipelines, takeaway, all those issues. While at range, I learned a lot around geology and rock quality, and and it really helped me do what we're doing today. I learned a lot there, and I'm applying what I learned there to the strategy that now PHX Mineral is barking on. So you retired in December 2018 from range, correct? I I retired from range after 30 years at at the end of year-end 2018. So what was your mindset at that time frame? Was it, I'm I'm ready for a change, or did you think you were done? You think you retired and then the opportunity at PHX Minerals came along and it was intriguing? Well, so it's a good question. Um, so I was on the board, what was at the time Panhandle Oil and Gas, when I retired from range in 2018. I'd been on the board Panhandle Oil and Gas since 2017. Oh, and I was the only, on the board, I was the only representative that had really good current industry, oil and gas industry experience to advise the board. All the other so- board members were more financial. Hey guys, I don't know about you, but as things start to get back to normal in our lives, it's been exciting to think about returning to good old-fashioned face-to-face meetings, BD travel, and networking events. Leading this charge on the events front is the team at Mark, whom I'm excited to announce is hosting their Minerals Conference in person at the Post Oak Hotel in Houston over April 19th and 20th. I've spoken with the Mark team and they've done a brilliant job setting up the venue to have indoor and outdoor seating in order to help facilitate a safer networking environment for everyone who participates. I can't wait to go, and I look forward to seeing you there in person so we can catch up. If you haven't registered yet, then I implore you to do so by visiting www.mineralconference.com or by emailing the Mark team at info at mineralconference.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. So, so taking a step back then, how did how did you get involved by being a director? Was that through a relationship or how yeah, did that relate? The, the CEO at the time, a guy named Paul Blanchard, was the CEO. He had worked for me running the Oklahoma City office for Lomac Petroleum. He reported up to me. So he, he and I had a great relationship, uh, worked together for five years. He left, he retired from range, kind of bounced around. And, be, and, and that, that was the difficult part of, of the transition because the mineral space had become between 2016 or 17, had become a asset class in and of itself. And the public mineral space was just a burgeoning of asset class. Public mineral companies, Kimball Royalty Partners, Brigham, Falcon Minerals. And it was because of, of the de-risking nature of horizontal drilling fracking that allowed this, this new asset class to present itself to potentially to, to public investors and public markets. So I was concerned that 
that the old, I don't want to in any way be disparaging to anybody. Panhandle had been a very successful company, but they basically managed and harvested from the asset had never really looked outward. And that, that old management style and strategy, I didn't feel like was serving the shareholders Panhandle well because the mineral space was blowing up and I realized Panhandle was going to get run over if we didn't do something. And the CEO, Paul, had been there for 10 years, and he was ingrained in the old strategy. So the board decided to make a change. I had just stepped down from, and I, you asked me if I was going to retire. No, I, I, I left Range wanting to do something else. I, Range had become basically an institutionalized company that were managing their assets. I'd kind of worked myself out of a job selling most of the other assets in the country, redeploying those proceeds into Marcellus. My skill sets just didn't, didn't really serve Range that way. Were you involved at all in some of the override deals that Range did? They, they've done at least two, possibly three, if I recall correctly, up in Marcellus. Were you that involved the, in that? Because that so brings we, a unique insight, right, to the table for PHS. Yeah, and that, that's a great question. It, it kind of brings to full circle or closes the loop on, on my So in, in the summer of 2018, I, I had basically gone to our CEO and told him early that year, June, May or June, that I was hiring but we had already started this process, and it was really at the at the advice suggestion of Tom Edelman. He came to us. He's still a large shareholder range, and he came to us and he said, "Look, you need to do something to pay down your debt. The market's really killing you because of your your debt, and so you need to figure out ways to pay it down." He said, "You have such a high NRI on your leases in the Marcellus. You could sell a two or three or four percent override on those leases and pay down debt, and still have a reasonable." NRI on those leases. We got an average 83, 84% NRI. Do, do you think being an early mover, that was that's unique to range? Or do you think that's unique to the, the basin of the Marcellus that you just happen to have meteor NRIs? Because when I talk with different mineral CEOs about strategy and they, they talk about the corporate space and you know, folks that are elephant hunting, for lack of better words, right? They're looking for those larger deals. The override carve-out model is is one of the more realistic strategies to take place. Callan is the only one who's done one outside of Marcellus, right? It's it, they did it in the Permian recently, but outside of that, they've all been in the Marcellus. Uh, and and the this, what's been told to me is Tim, the the economics for drilling become really strained in these other basins if you start carving out overrides. But in in the in Appalachian Marcellus. There's a lot more meat to play with. Just kind of, you know, high levels. Is, do you think that's that was a unique advantage for Range's assets, or do you think a lot of the large independents up there have a similar type of of NRI uh, level? So it, yeah, you're right. So we we had <clears throat> the first half of 2018, we had looked at other ideas, trying to monetize the asset, doing a drilling venture, carving off pieces. And just nothing. We talked to a lot of foreign investors, all the usual suspects that were floating around. We, we, we talked to a ton of people. Just never could. No mutual meeting of the minds would be worth. So we, we, we did a lot of work, but not, nothing came to fruition. Um, and then Edelman came in in May of that year and said, why don't you carve out this override? So that, that yes, that was a successful. We had a lot of interest. Um, and yes, it's unique, not necessarily to range, probably unique to the Marcellus because when those leases were acquired, Marcellus was unproven. So we were able to go negotiate leases with low royalty burdens. 
everybody acquired and that that was the problem is everybody acquired all those leases hundreds of thousands of acres early years in the 2009 with low royalty burdens and they everyone got their balance sheets in trouble they were drilling to hold to hpp all that wouldn't have to go back out release for higher obviously higher per acre bonuses so all the companies got got their balance sheets they got a little bit over their skis and took on too much debt to hpp all that acreage so that the nri is probably unique to the marcellus yeah no, I, I appreciate you explaining upon that. That's kind of what I've heard. But you know, you you were with Range, right? And Range has done the most, so that that insight is is helpful. So yeah, and it was the first. We were the first one to do one, and it, it was the last deal I did for Range, closing on that first override. Yeah, it was it was the first one with San Jacinto or Heritage? Well, well I'm it was forgetting. Heritage, the Canadian group. Yep, excellent. So so anyway, so we so you you stepped down at the end of 2018. And at the time, it was Panhandle. You, you, when, did, when did you come into the picture and join the team? Um, you were on the board, so you had seen a change in direction as being advantageous for shareholders. The, the other thing, too, didn't Panhandle historically have non-op as well as minerals? Yes, but that, that, that was part of the, the strategy change. So it was probably a, a, a good transition because I've been on the board for two years. I'd just come from the industry just done the overriding royalty interest sale for rain. So um, that that was part of the, as I began to understand three of, again, I'm going to refer to it for just a little while. At the time, as it were, uh, Panhandle Oil and Gas, I understood that the historical strategy was the prior management teams through the years would wait for an operator to lease their open minerals. And at that point, when somebody came and proposed to lease Panhandle Minerals, Panhandle Management would look at the economics of that well proposal side if they wanted to participate in the non-op working interest in the well or just lease and take a royalty interest. And in many cases, they would take a non-op working interest. So the asset base that today that PHX Minerals has is about half working interest, half royalty. So they were, while I was on the board, management participating in a bunch of non-op working interest wells, both in the scoop stack and in an asset they had in the Eagleford in South Texas. The capital allocation was just poorly misused and really some value destruction. So a transition from the board, became interim CEO, became full-time CEO in January of 20, had a strategy set and COVID hit. But in looking back, 2020 for most people, it was a, a, lost, de- a lost year anyway. We weren't able to necessarily accomplish everything that we had wanted to, and, but it a- actually allowed me time to I hired a couple of new people, got some systems, processes, and procedures in place, tightened some things up, uh, kind of build build the culture that I wanted. 2020, they actually we put to put together, did a little bitty offering, equity offering back in late August to to acquire some scoop assets underneath Continental Springboard project in Grady County. Uh, so it, that that really kind of I think overall brought some credibility and validity to the company. Everybody realized that going to be a player in our consolidation space. Actually, a- after we closed that deal and announced that, we've, we've had quite a few calls and inbounds just on deals. And so it, we, we weren't able to accomplish much in 2020 until that offering and, and really, uh, it really replaced all the lost time, lost opportunity because of COVID. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. 
In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. I also want to thank Enverus, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. Mineralsoft is Enverus's mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enverus's platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, Mineralsoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopment at enverus.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. You know, one thing, I mean, uh, what's the backstory on Panhandle? So it, it was kind of a sleepy company, as you mentioned. They weren't proactively going out and growing the the asset base. I mean, there's a couple of examples of companies who were similar that have transitioned. You have TPL, who which formerly was you know Texas Pacific Land Trust, no longer a trust as of a couple months ago, got it from Texas Rail, I believe. And so there's these large positions that were were kind of grandfathered in and then just harvested and managed and you have this public vehicle you have this asset base you have existing cash flow you have cash on the balance sheet and all of a sudden it's like well we're in a great spot to take advantage of this new asset class and let's pivot and change and you guys fall in that category i'm not specifically familiar with the backstory and what brought you to kind of where we picked it up in this episode, which is 2017 when you were on the board. So if you can provide that backstory, I think that'd be really interesting. I, I really think that's a great question. So when, I'm very familiar with TPL. And when TPL spun out of the old original TNP or Texas and Pacific Railroad, TNP went bankrupt. The surface and minerals that the Texas and Pacific Railroad owned spun out of the bankruptcy into this trust. It was a poorly written trust agreement. And I now I know one of the board members, Eric Oliver, he's told me a lot about that whole fight to get it to, to where it is today. It was a sleepy company. The trustees, they didn't do anything. They just let activity come to them. And here's the Permian Basin is blowing up with activity. The trustees weren't doing anything to try to enhance the value of, of the TPL assets that were right in the middle of Pecos County and Reeves County. And so, you know, the, 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 the unit, the time the TPL instrument was called a unit, but Stock. The owners of the stock were furious because the trustees were not doing anything. They were just sitting on the asset they had, letting the operators come to them to generate any activity rather than being proactive, going out and doing things to enhance the value the correct way. So it's a real, they're obviously they're a much, much larger company, HX, but it's a similar story because the, the, the leaders, the senior management at the time thought that they were doing the right thing, but it was a very slow, they were, it's like, Parked on the side of the road and having a lemonade stand, waiting for somebody to pull over and buy some lemonade from them, rather than going out and knocking door to door to sell your lemonade. They didn't do anything. They waited for operators to come to them. I really think the period between as horizontal drilling was being perfected, really beginning in 2016 and 17, as the scoop stack was becoming active, the, the management could have used their asset footprint 
bought and sold and traded. And that, that's what we did at Lomax. We're a tiny little company, bought and sold. And Edelman and Pinkerton were pushing me to buy and sell and trade and always high grade your assets. We did that at Range as we were discovering the Marcellus much more economic than you could do in Oklahoma or Permian. So I started selling everything at Mason, started redeploying the proceeds to Marcellus because it's well economic. So that therein lies the lesson that, that both TPL, probably their stock today is through the roof, 1700 bucks a share. Could have been there three or four years ago. It was taking some fight and some, some hard work on Murray Stahl and, and given their efforts to, to, to improve the, the position of TPL. And that's that's a similar story for, for now, for now PHX Mineral. You know, I did, I did an episode with Dick Jacobs um, that we're going to be launching uh, soon. And some people may not know that name, but but Dick was one of the first ones to form minerals management departments in the banks in the 80s. And, and was a pioneer of the management and the, the minerals management in the trust space. Um, so we went into detail on, on, on that. And, you know, to his best estimate, 10 to 11 percent of minerals in the United States sit within trusts and they're basically locked. And he said, the way the system is set up, trustees are incentivized to do nothing because if you do something and you're wrong, you get your head chopped off. But if you do nothing, then it's just, you know, you're just managing, you're just harvesting it. And transparency, technology disruption um, will, will kind of force the hand of these trusts to start looking at active management as a best way to maximize the the trustees uh, value or in the case of a public trust shareholder value. And, you you know, when you tell that story of TPL, that's exactly what he described. And if that happens at a, at a micro level in these private trusts, I think that's a really interesting chapter. I don't know when that opens, but uh, there's a lot of minerals that people would love to get their hands on that you can't really right now. Um, So I don't want to it get off a, on a tangent, but it's interesting. It's a disservice to the beneficiaries of those trusts. If the beneficiaries ever find out that they ignored their fiduciary responsibility. No, absolutely. So um, let's get a little bit more into the kind of the nitty gritty of PHX's strategy and you know how big you guys are, what basins you're in, and is there you know the existing portfolio? You said it's 50-50 minerals and non-op. Um, you know, what's the development profile and then what do you guys look for going forward? I mean, I imagine being publicly traded on the New York stock exchange, you're looking for yield. So you probably, you know, a PDV buyer like the others, but a lo- little bit more on the portfolio. Yeah. In, in terms of PHX minerals itself, you, you can really understand the, the, the overall issues I'm trying to work around. And that's the company owns a total of 253,000, 74,000 of which leased or producing call it 70% unleased and open. And after you look at the last decade of horizontal drilling, you gotta, you gotta wonder why 70% of your minerals are open. They're out, they're out on the margin. There's, at some price, some of it will work, but at, at no price, most of it works. Marginal stuff. I, I do think that, again, at the, at the time, Panhandle could have used their footprint to buy and sell and trade, prove their asset, high grade their asset. They didn't. So today, uh, I'm, I'm focused on growing the company and being an active participant in a accretive basis. We're going to use our equity to, to grow. What, where we're going to differ from, say, a Kimball is we're not going to brand ourselves as a yield instrument. We're not going to distribute 100% of our cash flow to our shareholders through a dividend. Or, because if you think about it, if you're, if you're distributing 100% of your cash flow, you're, that's, that cash flow is coming from a depleting asset. So by definition, if you're 
sending back to your shareholders 100% of that cash flow, a portion of that represents a return on capital, but also represents a return of capital because you're, you're not redeploying some of that cash into the asset to replace what's been depleted. So I want to grow the company today where we were when I took when I was on the board, we were a $300 million company. But over time, COVID happened, investment thesis, market change. Today, we're a $75 million market cap and about a little, little less than $30 million debt. We really spent 2020 reducing our debt in a big way, and that's really put us in a, our balance sheet in a good position. We're in great shape. We're below two times debt to EBITDA. When we get down to close to one, you asked about the balance sheet. Now, we have our leverage around one times debt to EBITDA. If we, if we get our arms around it really cool acquisition with some cash flow. I'd take it back up to two, but uh, no more. Volatility and commodity prices and the way the way the market views debt these days, you just can't get much, much bigger than that. They'll, uh, they'll run from you. So um, we have this, we have this leased asset base of 74,000 net mineral acres that provides all our cash flow. Of that, as, as I said, about half is working interest, half is royalty interest. You had mentioned uh, the scoop and stack a few times is a majority of it in the Anadarko. What, what it, basis? Yes. The, the listeners can go to our website. I, I invite them, encourage them to go to our website and look at the investor relations because it actually breaks out breaks out our production by area. But by definition, when Panhandle was formed, it was originally a co-op where farmers would contribute their mineral owners ownership, mineral interests into the company that became a subchapter corporation and went public in in the late 70s. So the, all those legacy, legacy minerals that those farmers had contributed to back in the 40s and 50s to the what was the co-op were in the mid-continent. At, at ownership in the Anadarko Basin, way far western Oklahoma, Panhandle, southeastern Oklahoma, that we have an enormous position in the Arcoma stack. And at $4 gas, all of a sudden we've got a bunch of minerals that are worth a lot of money and will be drilled on. We're near the Potato Hills field that GHK discovered so there's a lot of prospective minerals, but there's also a lot of minerals that probably don't hold a lot of hope. So um, we've got production of Scoop Stack, Haynesville, Bakken. We're focused on three basins too. Scoop Stack, we understand the rock. It's a bit of an underappreciated basin, but we understand it. We love the Haynesville. I love the future of natural gas. We're interested in the Marcellus. Yeah, that was gonna be that was gonna be my next question, right? Given your experience, will you start to build a portfolio up in the Marcel? So uh, I'm glad you you commented on that. Yes, very intentional about that. We're looking at a couple of opportunities right now. So. You know, a lot of times when a, a company that is public or has large a large institutional commitment to enter a new basin, you you need a certain entry level position, a certain size for it to make sense to. You know, one, you know, the entry level costs of title and due diligence and everything, you don't necessarily want to buy 40 acres, right? Whereas you might buy 40 acres that is accretive and a bolt on to an existing position in, in Haynesville or Anadarko. Just for everyone listening, since you're, you're in St. Marcel's, what is, what is that kind of entry level position requirement for, for a PHX Minerals look like? Well, so... What is our end game today? We're a hundred million enterprise value company. I would love to have success doing deals anywhere from ten million to up to a hundred or hundred and fifty million. But today, I, I would be willing to do a five million dollar deal right away. I understand the rock. I understand where the good assets are. I understand the behavior of the operators and 
actually our largest shareholder. Um, he participated in our offering in September, Robert Hefner III, who discovered the Potato Hills field and was the founder of GHK Petroleum back in the 80s. He's a, a great man, and I kind of consider him a, a bit of a mentor now. He's given me some advice. He's a proponent of natural gas. He's a proponent of my strategy. He's our largest shareholder and is supportive of, of the direction I'm taking the company. One of, one of the things he wants me to do is get into Marcellus, and that's what he said. That's why I invested in the company is your experience in the Marcellus, and I want I want the company to get into the Marcellus. I, I, I love the Marcellus. It's going to be producing for 100 years, if not longer. Rock quality is unbelievable. The reserves there are just gets better all the time. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. I also want to thank Enverus, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. MineralSoft is Enverus's mineral management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is Enverus's platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopment at enverus.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. So what revisiting at the beginning of the discussion, talking about override carve-outs, as a public company, does that structure make sense? Um, from what I hear, our banking clients and a lot of the the large investors that look into these these types of deals, they're pretty complex. You know, with being public uh, and using your cost of capital and whatever, is that structure appealing, or is it is it better suited for private capital? Would you say it's much more suited for private capital? It's just not suited it's in terms of cost of capital. Public companies just can't afford it. That was what I ran into when I first started marketing ranges. We sold a 3% override. I went all over the place for two and a half months. Our reservoir engineers and geologists, we went to Houston, New York, Toronto, Calgary, LA. We went all over the place. Family companies, Michael Dell, family offices of the world. And it was pretty expensive. We found the right heritage was one of the buyers. They understand minerals. That's their strategy. It fit their cost of capital and their yield structure for their investors. They had a real low hurdle yield. Public companies just couldn't couldn't afford it. They love the asset, but they just couldn't afford it. No, I appreciate the color on that, um, and it makes sense. It's why you haven't seen one from a Pupco, right? Well, very very good. Uh, I guess some some other specifics. You Marcellus, you're keen on. You like Hainesville. Do you like Texas Hainesville, do you prefer Louisiana? Will you look at both? Um, and then you mentioned Bakken. Are, are you still looking at Bakken? What, more, and then size, a little yes. color for everyone listening. Yeah. So to back up just a little bit, uh, an ideal, and I, I'll, look at any, I'll look at any deal, the ideal profile 
of our of an acquisition that we would look at, we'd love to have a third PDP, a third Ducks Whip, a third PEDs, line of sight development, quality operator. So we're focused on the Texas side of the Haines Bay. I'd look at Louisiana, but it's a little more complex and, and legacy state of Louisiana federal title on there. So uh, it'd it have to be the right kind of the right situation. But it, I, we love the Haynesville, and again, I'm, I'm a big proponent of that in terms of the way the markets turn into ESG, environmental emissions, CO2 emissions, renewable energy sources, wind, solar. I think hydrogen fuel is going to be a big, big thing. You can either source hydrogen through um, electrolysis of water, H2O, or um, steam reformation of natural gas. It's very rudimentary. It, it could be improved. The technology can be improved. It's one carbon molecule and four hydrogen molecules. So you break out that carbon molecule for a carbon sequestration. Be really improved in just last. I, I think in terms of success of hydrogen, success of hydrogen fuel cell technology improves just in the next few years. Proponents of it and users of it are going to have to decide whether the, that source of hydrogen comes from Ethane, biomass. One thing I just uh, we're kind of talking about natural gas basins. When you're when you're out marketing to your investor base and you're doing the banking IR shows, et cetera, et cetera. When you mention ESG, is it an easier story to tell that you're focusing on natural gas minerals? Uh, I know there's a layer of separation. You're not in control of the operations and the best practices. I think you're handcuffing yourself a bit if you're trying to only buy. ESG friendly operators, because there's just so many things out of your control. But when you go out and you say, we're going to make a big acquisition in the Marcellus, or we just made this acquisition in the Haynesville, is there a different response? Have you seen from investors that you're speaking to versus we just did a large royalties deal in, in oil? Uh, ha- haven't seen a short-term positive impact, but I do think money managers watching that, considering that, think someone with a story such as PHX, that we're investing energy source will keep CO2 emissions basis, renewables. Renewables have, have their own issues. Wind and solar, zero emissions, but to get to build the equipment and the stuff and the turbines and the solar panels to build that, where do those come from? You gotta you gotta disrupt nature nature to make the materials to make the wind turbines and the solar panels. So they they're not zero emissions. They've have their own so you know you can look at you can look at uh being factually complete about emissions or completely factual to be completely factual you got to understand corruption to nature and the emissions to build the solar panels and so that's why I've, I've looked at this and that's the messaging i'm i'm going to introduce in our story and in our you'll, over time here this year i'm going I'm to do some stuff in our materials that talks about just buying hainesville we're buying the marcellus clean natural gas it's the future yeah, I, you know, I really think there's there's definitely a path forward for ESG focused investors to first off natural gas, right? That ticks a box. But then, if if you fall into the bucket of okay, we're going to buy producing natural gas, then you take fracking out of the picture because the well's already producing. And you know, as if certain things are in conventional fields, you know, and there's there's a low carbon footprint because you're injecting CO2 in. There's a number of things there that, that I think are quite interesting that you could put like almost like an eco gas royalties fund or eco gas royalty strategy around that. And um, you know, I, I think it a lot of it is, is is good narrative that engages the investor and allows gives them the freedom to invest capital responsibly. Another serendipitous reason 
that uh, I'm, I'm looking in the Marcellus and the Hazel as the operator. So you look at the range and EQT, you go, go to their website and they have really fleet, thorough ESG um, sustainability reports. And range and EQT have gone to electric frac crews. So you can think about all the emissions that they've eliminated by going to electric frac crews that, that use equipment that's electric. That's bled over into the Haynesville, and the operators in Haynesville are doing the same thing. So their web, the well sites where the wells produce, they've gone to zero emissions with vapor recovery systems and peeled off all of where the methane was leaking. And you go to those websites with those radar guns, and there's zero emissions coming from the well sites. So they've all done a great job of cleaning up the issues around misperception of natural gas. That's a good thing about this. We have another podcasts focus on the we call it our investor series podcast and i did a couple of episodes to kick it off but my colleague ben west runs that i did an episode with enveris on that on that podcast that specifically talked about a lot of the research they're doing around emissions and benchmarking everything and it's exactly what you just said pneumatic equipment had a lot of methane leaks and venting in in the older basins i.e the barnett and in the Haynesville and Marcells, because they're newer, there's newer equipment, newer technology where they're capturing that. And so the footprint, the emissions footprint is so much smaller in those two basins. So if you're within the natural gas world, not all, not all apples are equal. And, you know, from, from that ESG lens, the Marcells and, and Haynesville are great, are, are great basins to focus on and are, are really the best and, you know, comparatively speaking with with everything else going on and then and then there's the best practices the operators on top of that right so that's yeah, a great point so and w- once the once all that comes out we, we talked about it here a little bit one of the w- once the completely factual accurate information natural a- application of natural gas in in this whole emissions story the headlines and the rhetoric and the policies that are being government policies are being, once all this comes out i think the market's going to start saying well let's look back at energy and see who's Who's doing what? What they need to be doing around the, the eliminating emissions, and, and they're going to figure out Haynesville and Marcellus, and then they'll see a, a little bitty company like PHX Minerals. Some of these young kids who are running these funds will go, "Hey, they, okay, they, this these guys get it." So that that's it. Might take a year, it might take two years, but I'm I'm going to kind of build a story around that. No, that's that's excellent. Well, Chad, I've I've really enjoyed this. Thanks for. I know we've been talking about doing this for a while, so I'm I'm glad we took the time to to do it. Um, any any other comments you want to mention here about the PHX mineral story, or just some some closing comments to to the mineral space, to the investment community? I'll I'll let you have the floor. Yeah, thanks, um, and, and thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to get our story out. So so I, I think to, to repeat what our strategy is is going to be is the uh, active proactive participant in the mineral consolidation space, and I like our. I like where we are. We're a public mineral company. We can close deals quickly, showing success. We've got a couple of deals that we're working on right now. Secondly, I would encourage all of our listeners to think about what Tim and I were just talking about in terms of emissions and how energy space, and especially natural gas, can actually be a participant in reduction in emissions and everybody get involved in that messaging. There's so much misrepresentation and obfuscation of facts that we're going to lose if we don't. Well, excellent. Well, Chad, thanks again. Um, have a, a great afternoon and, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Likewise. Either when you're down here in Houston or I'm up there in OKC. Great. Tim, thanks. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Council represents the largest network of senior minerals and royalties focused executives and investors in the world. 
Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team, then please email me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com forward slash minerals dash royalties dash council forward slash. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.